Welcome to A Bigger Life, where you can break through the distractions, stop, listen, and speak to God in prayer. I'm Dave Cover. I want to help you use the Bible as your conversation with God so you can live a bigger life. Nothing will lift up your soul, your heart, your mood, your attitude, your sense of being more than God-centered, God-exalting worship. You were created to derive your glory, your own sense of glory, your own sense of significance, your own sense of importance, worth, identity, from God's glory and God's identity and from God's worth. And whenever you disassociate your existence from the worship of God, you're disconnected in some way even from your own self, your own soul, your whole being. That's why to worship God, to lift your eyes to Him, to incline your heart to Him, sometimes you first have to speak to yourself and tell yourself to worship God, to praise God. There's a real you that needs to guide you, needs to guide your brain and your body and your heart into the real narrative of God's glory and presence through worship. So one thing important that we do in worship is speak to our own soul. It's the kind of thing where we hit a switch inside of our own brain that says, I'm going to focus my attention on God. I'm going to focus my praise and my worship to God. And in doing that, what we're doing is actually talking to ourselves. We're telling ourselves we're going to praise God. So one thing that we, we see in the Psalms, like Psalm 103, we looked at in our last episode, is exactly that. The very first and last thing we see in Psalm 103 is the same exact first and last thing we see here in Psalm 104. Remember, Psalm 103 started, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. It's just simply telling me to worship God. And that's exactly how Psalm 104 starts with that first part of that first line. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I'm talking to my soul. I'm talking to my, and the word soul here in the Hebrew means our life, our whole being, our whole self. I'm telling myself to bless the Lord. But in this Psalm, Psalm 104, the emphasis is on meditating on the I am. That's God's name, Yahweh. He is in Hebrew. The I am by noticing creation. Remember, the I am means that he is the source of all that exists. He's the one that all creation comes from. So Jesus does actually that in Matthew six twenty six when he tells us to look at the birds of the air. And he gives a lesson on a meditation, actually, on why we don't need to worry because God is involved even in the details of the lives of birds of the air in Matthew 6 and Matthew 10. He says, not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will, the care of your Father in heaven, and you're much more valuable than sparrows. And so Jesus, you can just tell by the way he taught, he spent time looking at nature, looking at creation and meditating on God by looking at what God has created. And what does that tell us about God? So he tells us to look at the birds of the air in Matthew 6.26. Again, in Matthew 6.28, 
He says, see how the flowers of the field grow. And then he draws a lesson from that about God and God's care. And so like Psalm 104, Jesus meditated on God by seeing how creation reflects God's wisdom and God's glory and God's care. And we've all been indoctrinated, I think, in, in, in the culture in which we were raised, grew up in, by a kind of permeating narrative of naturalism. So we call it nature, and we talk about Mother Nature, and nature does this, and nature does that, as if it's a, a personification of the natural world, rather than calling it creation. When we disassociate creation from God. And we've all sort of been trained to do that. And Psalm 104 reminds us to remind ourselves what Jesus knew. All creation reflects God's wisdom and God's glory and God's care and God's detailed infinite presence everywhere, even to the grass of the field and the sparrows in the air. One of the things we always see in the Psalms is how they consistently and poetically capture the bigger story this world is in. And so that's what we see here in Psalm 104. We're seeing a poetic capture of the bigger story by talking about God's creation of this world and love of the things of this world that he made, the love he has for animals, the love he has for the beauty of trees and grass, the love he has for the majestic mountains, and all these kinds of things that relate to the universe itself. And this psalm, it says in verse 34, is a meditation on God by meditating on what we can see of the story that God has created this world to be. So verse 1, bless the Lord, bless Yahweh, bless the I am, O my soul. That's also the last verse. It goes on to say, O Lord, Yahweh, my God, you are very great. Now, very great sounds like a very simplistic superlative. It doesn't sound very educated. Sometimes when we translate from Hebrew into English, you know, we're not going to have quite the same sophistication of poetry. Obviously, the psalmist here is trying to use words that say, God, you are the most high. You are the most great. There's nothing greater than you. You are the I am, and you are my God. Whenever the psalms talk about the I am being my God, it's taking two things that are true. One is that when God calls himself our God, that means he's committing himself to be our God forever, to be in relationship with us forever, to protect us forever, to be the source of our life forever. So if God is your God, that means there'll never be a time when you are not, because God is eternal. That was the argument Jesus made about the resurrection when he said, remember when God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, therefore he's not the dead, the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Jesus is saying, if God calls himself your God, there'll never be a time when you are not. You will always be in relationship with him. You will always be in connection with him. So when I call the I am my God, that is drawing on the sense that I belong to him forever. I am secure with him forever. He is committed to me forever. He is my source of life forever. The one who is the most high, the greatest, is my God. The very I am that created this universe is committing himself to be my God. But also when the psalmist says, 
you are my God. That means that I'm committing myself to God. He is the one that I worship. He is the one who is the source of my significance and the source of my worth, the source of my joy, the source of my security and my hope. He is my God. I trust in him most. I seek him most. I love him most. And so, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed. Now, just imagine this. This is using imagination poetry, appealing to our emotions, appealing to our imagination to picture something about God that requires our imagination to understand. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. We don't really use those words too much. Splendor, majesty. They're kind of words that are not words that are part of our everyday narrative. We don't think of many things having splendor and majesty. But we have to use our imagination to think of God in his splendor, clothed with light, a God of majesty and splendor. These are synonyms of the word holy, by the way. God's radiance, God's glory, God's godness that sets him apart from anything else in creation, covering yourself with light as with a garment. This is why one of the things the Apostle Paul says about God in 1 Timothy 6.16, he alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. He dwells in unapproachable light. Light, And we can't imagine this, but you have to try. Imagining God in unapproachable light, light so bright you can't see him. If you saw him, you would be incinerated. His glory, his splendor, his majesty, no one can see because we are in a state of sinfulness. We are in a state where it says in Romans 3.23 that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And so we can't, we have to see God in our imagination, imagining his splendor, imagining his majesty, imagining the light. And then it says, stretching out the heavens like a tent. In other words, the tent was a tabernacle that was kind of a, a mobile temple before there was a big temple. It was where God would dwell in his glory through the Ark of the Covenant. And the tent is kind of a picture here of the universe. God has stretched out the galaxies like a tabernacle for his glory to dwell in. When we look at the universe, we're seeing the very tabernacle that God has built with his own hands. Hands being poetic because God doesn't have hands. But God has built this universe. He has created this universe. And all the brightness you can imagine of the brightest stars and the brightest Brightest galaxies are simply just creations of God. Imagine the creator of the greatest light you can imagine, the creator being greater than the created. God's splendor, God's majesty, God stretching out the heavens, the universe like his own tabernacle for his own glory. And now it's bringing us even further into the story. So the story has started with God creating the universe, the I am, the source of all existence, the creator of everything that exists, the source of all being, and the giver of all life. And so verse 5, he set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. Now this is poetry. The idea of the earth being on foundations is not something we're supposed to take from the Bible God's word said it, therefore I believe it. The earth has foundations. It's not round. That's not what this is saying. This is using images of 
imagination, for us to understand that God has built this earth for a purpose. He has established it because he has an eternal purpose for it. Verse 6, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. So this is giving us the narrative of God in Genesis 1-2, where it says, God's Spirit hovered over the waters, and God said, let there be light. And, the, and eventually there was light, and the waters receded, and the mountains, there was, the earth was separated from the water. These are all Genesis 1 kind of images. At your rebuke they fled, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose, the valley sank down to the place that you appointed for them. This is all Genesis 1 language. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. That God has this purpose in creation. He separated the waters from the land and God is creating the land because he is creating a story a story for humanity to be created in his image, to reflect his splendor, to reflect his majesty, to live in his light, to reflect his love, and that God is stretching out the universe to be a tabernacle for his glory and specifically for the earth. He has established the earth that it should never be moved. He's covered it with his glory, so to speak, and his creation separating the waters from the land, rising mountains, sinking valleys. God is setting boundaries because God is creating because he has a purpose. It is a story he is creating. So verse 10, you make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. Again, this is Genesis 1 kind of language. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Now, people indoctrinated with naturalism, we just kind of oh-hum about watering the mountains with rain and all these kinds of things. So what about birds dwelling in the heavens and all these kinds of things? But when you think about springs that gush forth in the valleys and flow between the hills and give drink to every beast of the field, this is saying this is a story that God is the creator. God designed all this. God does all this. All this is a reflection of the glory and the majesty and the splendor and the wisdom and the care of God. We think it's no big deal. Oh, it's just rain that causes all this water. But when you think about rain, if you really think about rain, what's happening there? Somehow, some way, rain is coming from the ocean, taking the salt out of the water and bringing hundreds of billions of gallons of water from the ocean, hundreds of miles inland to the hills, and then not pouring it, but sprinkling it through raindrops and watering the hills and watering the trees and making springs gush forth in the valleys and flowing between the hills to give drink to every beast of the field and birds that sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Just meditate on the amazing thing about how that works. Don't take it for granted. Oh, yeah, it's just rain. Just rain? I mean, think about the miracle of rain and that God has created a universe where that happens. 
Verse 14, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. All of this is a story, a story that God is unfolding in creation, the creation of the universe, the creation of the earth, and all the ways that life on earth works. And ultimately, it's about human beings cultivating the planet, cultivating the earth, created in the image of God to continue his work of creation, to exercise dominion over the earth, to reflect God's love, to live in his glory. Verse 16, the trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. Again, the miracle of how God waters the trees from water from the ocean, takes the salt out of it, brings it hundreds of miles and billions of gallons, and then sprinkles it through raindrops rather than just some big flood that would kill all life if it fell on it. Verse 18, the high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. Just even just wild animals out in the mountains are something that's part of God's story. I think often of Jesus, it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, where he was in the wilderness, and it says he dwelt with the wild animals. Somehow God, when he became human, was able to dwell in the wilderness with wild animals, not be endangered, but those wild animals were part of something that he was able to do. It's part of him being God over creation. And he spent time with the wild animals as part of his mission here on earth. I don't know what all that means, but it's mentioned in the Bible for a reason. Verse 19, he made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. That The story of God creating this solar system and the earth to revolve around the sun and the earth to be the distance that it is away from the sun and God creating a moon that revolves around the earth and the size of the moon and the size of the sun, it turns out that the moon is 400 times smaller than the sun and the sun is 400 times further from the earth than the moon, so that they are both the exact same size from the perspective of standing on the earth to the human eye. And so we can have total eclipses where the moon completely eclipses the sun exactly so we see the rings of the sun and we can understand the sun. It's an amazing thing when you think about it that God created the distance of the earth to the moon to the sun all for reasons of God from the perspective of humanity being able to see them, to mark seasons, and for us to understand our universe better. Verse 24, O Lord, the I Am, how manifold are your works. Just thinking about this whole story and thinking about the universe and thinking about the earth and the moon and the sun and the wild animals and the way that rain works. How manifold are your works. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Think about the wisdom of this creator that has created not just what we see on the earth with the miracle of rain and how all the plant life works and the animal life works and the sun and the moon and all that, but think of the wisdom that of the God that created this universe and quantum physics and galaxies and things we have no idea, the mysteries of this universe. And the one who created this universe to be a dwelling place for his glory, to display his splendor and his majesty and his light. Think of the intelligence 
of this being, the power of this being, the wisdom of this being. That's what this psalm is saying. Talking about all life on earth, verse 28, when you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. That God sending forth his spirit creates life. He renews the face of the ground when he creates new life and he takes away their breath and he takes away life and they die and return to the dust. This is a system, a story that God has made. God is the one who gives life. God is the one who takes away life. When God opens his hand, they are filled with good things. When God hides his face, they are dismayed. When he takes away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Verse 31, may the glory of the I am endure forever. May the I am rejoice in his works. All creation, all life on earth, all the universe is a work of God that God rejoices in, that God delights in, that God is creating because he's creating a story, a bigger story that your life is in. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. And the earth and the universe is part of that story of the glory of the Lord enduring forever. And it's a story that we can be in as well. Verse 33, I will sing to the Lord. I will sing to the I am as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God. There's that phrase again, the one who is committed to me to be my God, the one I am committed to, to worship as my God, to live for, to derive my meaning, derive my security, derive my glory, derive my identity, derive my worth from him. He is my God. He is the one who brings significance to my life. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. He's the one who gives me my being. He's the one who gives me my life. Every moment that I have comes from his hand. His spirit gives life. His open hand fills me with what is good. If he hides his face, I am dismayed. If he takes away my breath, I die and return to the dust. He is the one who gives life. He is the I am. He is the author of life. Every moment of life is a gift from him. Nothing is mine. I'm not the source of my own being. I didn't cause myself to be born. Every moment of my life derives from God and is a gift from him. So verse 34, may my meditation be pleasing to him for I rejoice in the Lord means that I look at all creation and I see it the way Jesus saw the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. I see it as a reflection of God's wisdom and God's power and God's majesty and God's splendor and God's light and God's glory and God's care that my meditation upon all these things would cause me to rejoice in the I am. Rejoice in the I am as the source of all existence and the author and giver of all life and the one who gives me life, the one who has a reason for giving me life, the one who has a plan for my life, the one who wanted me to exist in his universe as part of his story, for his universe, for his glory, for his light, and I exist for him and he has committed himself to be my God and he became human human in the person of Jesus to die on the cross to take my sin upon him so that he could break through 
through the other side of death and give me a resurrection and bring me into the kingdom of God and the kingdom of light and to live in his splendor and his majesty and his glory and to be able to sing praise to the I am as long as I live and that that would be forever, to sing praise to my God while I have my being and that that would be forever, that I would rejoice in the I am forever. The last verse let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Now, all of a sudden, it's taken a dark turn, but it's really part of the same story. God loves this world. He loves the care for this world. And what sin and evil does is it defiles and ruins and destroys his creation. It's a devolution of his creation. It's a violence against his creation. And God is going to remove evil from his world. That's part of this story. And of course, Jesus came so that he could remove evil from this world, but not remove us. So the last phrase, bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord, that I would praise the I am. That's what this is. All these, the Lord is that Hebrew verb. He is, bless he is, O my soul, praise he is, the I am. In some sense, this whole psalm is a prayer for a restored creation where sin and evil do not ruin God's creation, that God renews and restores his splendor and his light and his majesty, that he commits himself to be my God and that I will have my being forever, I will live forever and rejoice in him and praise him and reflect his glory and live in his love So even now, I praise God while I have my being. Even now, I praise God as long as I live. I praise God, oh my soul, that I would bless the I am, that I would lift up my eyes and that I would see the I am as the source of all that exists and the giver of all life and the one who is 100% present with me right now, cares for every detail of my life right now. Jesus said, numbers the very hairs of my head, that the care of my Father in heaven is completely 100% personal according to the same wisdom that created this entire universe. The same power that created this entire universe is focused on me because he has committed himself to be my God. I give praise to you, Lord, because you have committed yourself to be my God forever to fill my life with your splendor forever and your majesty forever and to even cover me with your light. Jesus said, I will shine like the sun in the kingdom of my Father, that I will live in your light, live in your splendor, live in your majesty. The God who stretched out the universe like a tent as a tabernacle for your glory, you invite me to come into that story and to live in your glory. And you created me in your image to exercise dominion over your creation, to care for your creation in the glory of the I am, in the glory of this creator that you have in some way committed yourself to me to raise me up and to make me someone of significance, of splendor and majesty. I give I get my glory from you. I get my identity from you. My worth comes from you because you are my God. 
and all of creation is a reflection of your incredible wisdom and your intelligence. Every detail of every molecule and every star in this universe, every galaxy in this universe is a reflection of your intelligence and your power and your wisdom and your presence and your care. There's not a place in your universe that you are not involved in and care about and are present with. Oh Lord, how manifold are your works, all your works in your universe, all your works on this earth, all your works in the details of my life. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your glory. The earth is full of your creatures. You have created everything, everything that exists, every life form on this earth, every little piece of life, whether it's a bacteria or an amoeba or an elephant or a humpback whale, everything comes from you. Everything was created by you. Every life is a life that comes from your spirit. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. And when you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Everything comes from you. Everything is sustained by you. Every heartbeat is sustained by you giving it one more heartbeat. Every breath is sustained by you giving it one more breath. My heartbeat, my breath comes from your hand. Every moment is a gift from you. Every moment is because you have a purpose for me. My life is a story inside your story, and that's what gives me significance. And the earth is full of your glory, and I want my life to be filled with your glory because you are the spirit that gives me life. And there will be a day when you will take away my breath and I will die and I will return to the dust, but you will give me a resurrection forever in a body that is glorious, a body that is able to see the spiritual world, a body that is able to live in your unapproachable light without being incinerated, a body without sin, a body without death. And in me, the glory of the Lord will endure forever because you give me life forever and a resurrected body forever because of Jesus, that the glory of the I am will endure forever. And may the Lord rejoice in his works, that you would rejoice in your work in my life, that I would be somebody whose life you rejoice in and delight in, and that I would bring joy to you by the way I live my life and to live my life for your glory. Because as long as I live, I will praise you. As long as I have my being, you will be my God. Every moment of my life is a gift from you, and I rejoice in you. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the I am. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to A Bigger Life, a podcast of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and give it a rating so people can find this content more easily or consider texting it to a friend or posting it on social media. Thanks for listening.